This audio version of Hearts of Purpose by Gail Grace Nordskog has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by the hosts of the Monstrous Regiment podcast. Please visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to access the rest of this audiobook and many more. Audrey Foster, Founder, Family Connections, Christian Adoptions, and Shared Blessings. Focus, Worldwide Adoptions and Aid to Orphans. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are potter, and all we are, the work of your hand. Being available to God is a never-ending adventure. We never know where he will take us. But I do know we can trust him to use us well and to accomplish things through us that we could never do on our own. Psalm 37.4 advises us, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In being God's conduit, letting him know that we are available to have his purposes flow through us, whatever they are, we open our lives to the unexpected. When we are not looking for it, he will satisfy our hearts. No one is more incredulous than I am when someone reminds me that I founded an adoption agency that has placed thousands of children into families, and that I began an outreach for orphans in Africa that now works in three countries at five different locations. Both organizations have grown beyond my wildest imagination. I'm not being overly modest when I tell you that I have no outstanding skills in any one area. I don't mean to say that I can't do anything well, but that I am not an expert in any field, and that there are quite a few fields that elude me completely. This is why I am deeply humbled and grateful that God has used my availability. The First Project The first project, Family Connections Christian Adoptions, or FCCA, is an adoption agency whose main purpose is to find adoptive families for special needs or waiting children. Since its humble beginning in 1983 in the back room of a church, the agency has expanded to six offices throughout California. Countless lives have changed as the agency's efforts have led to more than 5,000 children finding their permanent families. The second project, Shared Blessings was originally meant to be a small sponsorship program to help a rural orphanage in Uganda, Africa. It is now sending support to five places, three in Uganda, one in India, and one in Myanmar, formerly Burma. In the past year alone, we sent over $260,000 to help the poorest of the poor children. Both of these projects, FCCA and Shared Blessings, unfolded over the years while I was struggling to be faithful to what I considered to be my first calling, which was to be a devoted homemaker for my husband and children. I grew up in an age when women with families apologized for working outside of the home before their children were grown. So even though that had changed some by the time I was married and raising a family, it was still a part of my psyche. When I married Tom Foster, I had no plans to look for a paying job outside of the home, even though his salary as a clergyman barely stretched to the next paycheck. During our first year of marriage, I was busy finishing college and getting used to running a household. After that, my time was brimming over with church responsibilities. Tom was the only pastor in a church of several hundred people, mostly young families. Parishioners dropped by constantly. Tom often brought unexpected guests for meals, and our house was used for everything from a men's group held in our basement to overflow Sunday school classes in our living room, bedroom, and garage. Tom and I were young when we married. I was 20, and he was 24. We were full of dreams of what we hoped to accomplish for God. Our lack of money was inconvenient, but not something we focused on. 
Both of us had grown up right after the Depression, and we were used to being resourceful and making do with what we had. In our childhoods, in a lower middle-class area of New Jersey, we had been exposed to people from diverse cultures and from all walks of life. We learned to appreciate the beauty of diversity and to keep a sense of humor about quirks and eccentricities. We were eager to start our family, especially after I finished college and had extra energy to spare. While we waited impatiently for a pregnancy, I decided to volunteer in the nursery of a local children's home. Children were being cared for there until either their parents could take them back or they were placed for adoption. It was hard for me to abide by the nursery rule that babies were to be held as little as possible. Babies who could not sit up in a high chair to eat had to have their bottles propped in the crib. The idea was that they would get spoiled if you held them when they were being fed, and then they would just expect to be held all the time. After a couple of months of agonizing over this, I asked if I could take one of the babies home to live with us. At least I could cuddle one baby, if not a roomful. It was amazingly easy to work out the details to bring home one three-month-old baby named Wanda. She was a delightful baby, and she slipped seamlessly into our household. Tom and I enjoyed her immensely. On Sunday mornings, Wanda's mother, Armina, would come and babysit while I went to church. Armina was a feisty lady, short and plump, with a droll sense of humor. In her mid-thirties, she had absolutely no experience with babies. Her husband had left her when he learned she was pregnant, and Armina was terrified by the thought of coping with a new baby while trying to earn her living. She voluntarily left Wanda at the children's home while she thought about what to do. Over the months, as she cared for Wanda every Sunday morning at our house, she became comfortable changing diapers and giving bottles. Her Sunday morning visits would stretch out over the whole day. By the time Wanda was almost two, Armina was ready to take her home and care for her full time. Even though this was a goal we had worked toward, it was hard to say goodbye to Wanda. But we knew it was right for her to be with her mother, and we knew we could be seeing her again because by this time we had all become friends. When Wanda left, there was a big gap in our household. We had been married two and a half years, and still there was no pregnancy. After doctors told us that it was unlikely that we would have birth children, we wasted no time in applying to adopt. We were ecstatic when the call came about six-day-old Andrew, born on our third anniversary. That was a very special time for us. We were so grateful to God for entrusting us with this new little life. The words of Psalm 127 sang joyfully in our hearts. Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Two years later, we were blessed again when, after a surprise pregnancy, I gave birth to David. Twenty-one months after that, there was another surprise, and I gave birth to Allison. A double surprise came eighteen months after Allison's birth. We named our twins Susan and Beverly. That was plenty to keep me busy for a while. The twins were three years old when 16-year-old Diana came into our lives. A friend of Karen, our teenage babysitter from church, Diana ran away from home when life there became dangerous and intolerable for her. She fled to Karen for help, and Karen turned to Tom, her pastor, for guidance. That was how Tom became involved in trying to heal the situation between Diana, her mother, and her stepfather. To ease the tensions, Diana moved in with us, with her mother's permission. Our young children adored her. Kind, soft-spoken, and pretty, she was patient with their bids for her attention, and she had a sweet spirit. Soon it felt like Diana was part of the family. In the meantime, her ties to her birth family were weakening. A year passed. Tom and I, Diana, and our five children came to the mutual decision that we wanted Diana to be a true daughter in our family. 
Diana's mother agreed to this, and so, with much joy, we adopted 17-year-old Diana. Fast forward 10 years. Diana was now married with two young children, and Tom and I had moved from New Jersey to California, where Tom became the pastor of a large church in Modesto. The twins, our youngest, were teenagers, as were Allison and David. Andrew, our oldest, was in the army. While I was still busy with family, friends, and church, I was feeling unsettled in my spirit. I was dissatisfied with how I was using my hours. I yearned to be doing something meaningful for children who lacked the love of family. This desire had been building over the years, fueled by my morning devotional time and my late-night readings about missionary work with orphans. I felt personally blessed by life, and I wanted to share the love that God has showered on me with children who lack it. Specifically, I had a desire to alleviate the sorrows of orphans. These feelings ran very deep, and I could not shake them. I begin to think that this is God's way of letting me know He wants me to do something about it. I was not quite sure where to start, but since adoption had always been close to my heart, I offered my services at our county's adoption agency and learned that they do not use volunteers. I tried other avenues, but nothing worked out. Finally, I came to the conclusion that if I wanted to be involved in adoption work, I would need to get a job as a social worker. Since that required a master's degree, I would have to go back to school. This was a major decision, which I found daunting, but Tom encouraged me, and so I began the two-year journey into the world of academia. Every morning I continued to pray, Dear Lord, I offer you myself, my soul, and body to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice this day. Use me as you will, when you will, where you will, and with whom you will. I think that I really meant it when I fervently prayed that prayer, but I would soon learn that it is very difficult for me to lay down my own passionate desires and simply say, Thy will be done. After graduating with a master's degree in counseling, I found it impossible to get a job as an adoption worker. I had known that a master's degree in social work, an MSW, would open doors for adoption work, but the local college didn't offer it, and I was not willing to spend another two years making a four-hour round trip to a college that did. My first priority was still my family, and I wanted my schooling to have the least possible impact on our family life. California regulations had recently changed to allow other master's degrees besides the MSW to fulfill the requirement for working in adoptions, and I thought that would cover me. However, the mindset of employers had not caught up with the change in regulations, and no one was willing to hire someone without an MSW for adoption work. At one interview, I was offered the job to begin a branch office in Modesto for the Children's Home Society. This was a dream job, running an adoption office for a well-respected agency. At the end of the interview, the man said, You do have your MSW, right? He had failed to read the details of my application. When I told him I did not, he was furious and said he could not hire me after all. After many months and countless dead ends, I managed to get on a list for a county adoption worker job. Tests and interviews stretched out a long time, but finally I learned that I was selected for the job. I was so happy. Then I was told there was a minor adjustment. The job description had changed, and it was now in the Protective Services Department. Stunned, I reluctantly said I would try it. Working in protective services was filled with tension and heartbreak, going into filthy houses to remove terrified children from parents often belligerent and strung out on drugs. Many of the children did not go back to the parents but grew up in foster care. A few very young ones became candidates for adoption. 
I did this work for three months and then was transferred to the foster care department where the caseload was high and it was hard to accomplish anything but monitoring the placements. After several months, I gave notice to my supervisors that I was leaving. They tried to persuade me to stay, but knew that I had been hired for an adoption job that didn't materialize, and that was where my heart was. Now I really didn't know what to do next. I began to question myself. Why was I so discontent with my life and so driven about working in adoption? I felt guilty for not appreciating all the good things in my life. A loving husband and children, good friends, a nice house. The list could go on. But the truth was, I was dissatisfied with life because I so badly wanted to realize my dream of helping orphans, and it no longer seemed likely I would ever get to do that. My unfulfilled desire to work in adoption had become a deep and painful ache in my heart. It cast a dark shadow over the rest of my life. One day, while I was alone in the house, going over all this in my mind once again, I began to sob. God, I don't know why you have given me this overwhelming desire, but it is obvious that it is not your will for me to be doing adoption work, because two years have passed without a hope, and there are no possibilities in sight. I really do want to live my life for you, so please tell me what you would have me do with my time and energy. Forgive me for my ungrateful heart. I give up the idea of working in adoption. Just let me know how you want me to serve, and I will do it. Suddenly, a beautiful peace washed over me, one that I had not known for a long time. I felt expectant and happy. I blew my nose, washed my face, and went to the kitchen to make lunch. When Tom came in the door for lunch that day, he was all excited. That morning, he had been at a meeting of the local clergy. What do you think about sponsoring a refugee family from Vietnam, he asked me. Then he continued, one of the guys at the clergy meeting belongs to this group that sponsors refugees, and he was asking if we could help him find a sponsor for a particular family. Their sponsor in Chicago dropped out without much notice, and they need another sponsor right away. It would mean finding housing for the family and helping them adjust to a new culture. We could ask the people at church to help us. What do you think? What I thought was, wow, here is God's answer to my prayer already. Just a few days before, I had been reading the local newspaper and a picture hit me with a slam. It was of refugee children behind a barbed wire fence. Looking at their sad faces made my eyes sting with tears. I had said a prayer for them and then cut out the picture to save, not really knowing why I was keeping it. When Tom told me about the refugee family who needed help, I knew that God had been preparing my heart for just this situation. I shared all of this with Tom, and together we decided that we would volunteer to sponsor this family. It was actually two related families, four adults and six children, ages 1 to 10. We had three days to find a place for them to rent and to get it ready. Somehow we found housing, and by the time the families arrived with the help of church friends, we were able to settle them in. Over the next months, I became extremely busy helping the families to adjust to a new culture and driving them to appointments at clinics, schools, and various agencies. We had to communicate with hand gestures and facial expressions, with much jumping around, but we managed. We were becoming good friends and had many laughs as we stumbled through the refugee resettlement process together. Several months into this wild but interesting routine, it was anything but routine, my phone rang. It was one of my former supervisors at the county welfare department. Would you be interested in a half-time job setting up a special needs adoption program for the county? We just received a grant to do this, and we need someone who believes in finding families for special needs kids and who can get a program going. 
I did not even need a minute to think it over. Yes, yes, I will do it. The first thing that struck me as I began the special needs adoption program was that God had prepared me in a way I would have never designed. Those months of working in protective services and in the foster care department had given me an understanding of the children who would be coming into the adoption program. Each child began in the heartbreaking situation where protective services found him or her. He or she was then moved into the unsettled life of a foster child. I had been intimately involved at both levels. I was not blinded into thinking that there was no anguish and sorrow underneath the normal-looking exteriors of these children. Adoptive families would need preparation and understanding because they would be dealing with puzzling behaviors based on the past experiences of the children. Education would need to be a vital part of the special needs adoption program. Children were considered special needs if they were over two years old or of minority race, were part of a large sibling group of three or more, or had a physical challenge, emotional difficulties, learning delays, or negative parental background, or a combination of those factors. As you can guess, just about every child in the foster care system fit into the special needs category. Not all were available for adoption, but many were. The program to find adoptive families for these children took off like a rocket. As I had thought, there were many good and loving families out there with a desire to bring a waiting child into their circle. After recruiting them, I needed to vet them and educate them about parenting the children they hoped to adopt. It was demanding, challenging, exhausting work, and I loved it. During the five years that I worked for the county adoption department, God stretched me. My terror of public speaking faded away when I was telling large groups of people about children who needed families. I didn't feel like I was giving a speech. I felt more that I was talking to sympathetic friends about a subject very dear to my heart. My timidity about driving to unknown destinations diminished, as home visits to families took me to many surrounding towns. At home, our family had increased by two. Our 11-year-old nephew, Jason, was already living with us when we added 11-year-old Brian. I heard about Brian when a social worker from another agency called me for help. She needed a replacement family for Brian, who had come from Hong Kong to be adopted. The adopting family was not meeting his medical needs, and he needed to be moved. I said I would try to recruit a family, and I did try. Yet, somewhere in the process, Tom and I decided that we would like to be Brian's parents, so we did an inner-country adoption without leaving town. Brian and Jason soon became best buddies and attended middle school together. They brought a lot of boy energy and fun to the household, which had been down to our three daughters, Tom and me. After my five years of adoption work at the county, there was a change in upper management. The new boss decided that everyone needed to change departments so we would not get entrenched in one spot. This was not good news for me. I did not want to move to another department. I would rather leave the county job. Since there were no other local opportunities to work in adoption, I was feeling very sad about laying down the work I loved. It was at that point that Tom suggested an idea that I thought was really off the wall. Why don't you start your own adoption agency, he challenged. Are you crazy? I don't know how to start an adoption agency. Even if I did, I wouldn't know how to run it. I'm a social worker, not an administrator. And really, I'm still a housewife at heart. Besides, where would I start? There's no money to begin. I know nothing about getting a license, and where would we have an office? And, and... Tom countered every objection, and I reluctantly began to go along with the idea. I did not see how it could work, but I finally prayed, God, I'm available if you want me to do this. If you really want me to start an adoption agency, I will need your help every step of the way, because you and I know it's out of my league. 
I also knew that at that time it was almost impossible to get a license to open an adoption agency in the state of California. Bethany Christian Services, a large agency from Michigan, had recently succeeded in doing that, and I learned that it took their high-powered attorneys over two years to get through the process. So I also prayed, Dear God, if by some miracle we are able to get a license, I will know that this is what you really want me to do. I was very skeptical about the possibility of this happening, so I didn't worry too much about how I would run an adoption agency. God did not leave me any doubts about what he wanted. In less than three months, we had an adoption license in hand. In the meantime, our church had accepted Family Connections adoptions as a ministry and put us under the umbrella of their nonprofit status. We were given a suite of two rooms and a bathroom in the back of the church rent-free, along with the privilege of using the church copy machine. We scrounged around for desks and equipment and borrowed some money from a friend to put in a good telephone system. An adoptive parent from my county days volunteered to be the receptionist slash secretary, and I took over all the other jobs, director, social worker, recruiter, teacher for the classes, volunteer coordinator, etc. There was an enthusiastic group of volunteers ready to help in various ways, many of them adoptive parents I had worked with at the county. Valentine's Day, 1983. Family Connections Adoptions, or FCA, opened for business on February 14, 1983. We were licensed to do adoptions from foster care anywhere in the United States and also adoptions from other countries. The phone began to ring and soon families were lining up to go through the adoption process. Initially, we were licensed to serve families in only three counties in California because I did not want to spread ourselves too thin. As our work increased and we were able to pay a staff, we added more counties until ultimately we were serving the whole state of California. We opened branch offices in Sacramento and Fresno and then in Oceanside. Eventually, offices in Ventura and San Luis Obispo completed the California branches. I had no master plan for all of this, but the master had a plan. Of course, being at the center of things in an adoption agency, you will come across many appealing children who touch your heart and motivate you to work hard to find families for them. There was one group of four siblings who especially moved me. John was 14, and his three sisters were 12, 10, and 6. Of Chinese heritage, they had been born in Cambodia, and, with their mother, fled the country during the Khmer Rouge genocide. From a refugee camp in Thailand, they were sponsored to come to the United States. A year after their arrival, their mother died, and the four children went into the California foster care system. A family who was looking to adopt a sibling group of four was in the Family Connections adoptions process, and when they learned of the four Chinese children from Cambodia, they went forward with plans to meet them. Somehow, I felt they were not the right fit for these bright and lively children. They were a somber couple in their fifties, who liked what they had read about the children, but who did not seem to take any delight in their Asian heritage. I kept talking to Tom about how great these children were and showing him their pictures until one Saturday afternoon as we were floating around the pool together, he said, why don't we adopt them? Surprised, I told Tom I would just love to do that, but there was no way I could tell the family who was planning to adopt them to move out of the way because we were moving in. I felt in my heart that those children were meant to be ours, but I didn't know what I could do about it. Tom and I prayed and asked God to work it out whatever way was best for the children, his way. On Monday morning, the other family called the office, very excited and happy. We just heard about a sibling group of four available from Fresno County, and they're Caucasian. We want you to look into that for us. They were no longer interested in the first group of four. As it turned out, they did adopt those Caucasian kids and were good parents for them. 
Happily, we went on to adopt John, Heather, Laura, and Mary. It was 10 years before we adopted one more time. Family Connections Adoptions had started an adoption program in Ethiopia long before movie stars made it the thing to do by publicizing their adoptions from there. By this time, I was 60 and Tom was 64. We had not been planning to add more children to our 12, but the more we learned about the desperate situation in Ethiopia, the more difficult it became not to open our home to at least one or two children from there. Old parents are better than none, we decided. As it turned out, we brought home four children from Ethiopia. Abraham, 13, Christy, 12, Sarah, 12, and Johannes, 8. The only child left in our household at the time was 17-year-old Mary, and she was a wonderful help in getting the new children settled in. They were in awe of this bouncy teen who could drive them around. The new four were vivacious, eager to learn everything American, and always ready for fun. Tom and I sometimes struggled to keep up with them, and when we ran out of energy, we just reminded ourselves, old parents are better than none. One day, Stephen, a visiting clergyman from Uganda, came to the Family Connections Adoptions Office with Tom. He saw pictures of the many children adopted from Ethiopia adorning the walls of the office and said, You should do adoptions from Uganda. There are so many homeless children there. Then he told us about a group of ladies from a church there who were taking in orphans from the roads and bushes. The women had no means of support except what they could glean from their own supplies. Most of the villagers lived in dire poverty and could not help. The ladies were wondering how they would continue to feed the children. I knew that Uganda did not allow adoptions, so an adoption program was not a possibility, but Tom and I could not get those hungry children out of our thoughts. We began to pray for them and decided to contact Stephen to see how we could help. We asked if we could start a simple sponsorship program where we and some of our friends would pay in $25 a month. I would collect the money and send it to Elizabeth, who was in charge of the Dorcas Orphanage. She would send me pictures and updates on the children. I asked the Family Connections Adoptions Board if we could do this as an outreach of the adoption agency, and they agreed. So a new ministry, Shared Blessings, was born. My plans for Shared Blessings were simple, but God had other ideas. The number of sponsors grew. Many people liked the idea that 100% of the money was going to the children. This was possible because the work was done by volunteers, and Family Connections Adoptions picked up the administrative costs of postage and printing. When we learned of other needs at Dorcas Orphanage besides the basics of food and clothing, we let people know and we were thrilled to see the money come in to complete many projects, a well for clean water, a van, and even a health center. After a couple of years, I thought it would be good if we could send a medical mission group to the orphanage and surrounding villagers. I knew nothing about organizing this, but I found people who did. The mission trip turned out great, although it worked out that out of 13 people going, there was only one doctor and one nurse. The others went to help out in various ways and to get to know our Ugandan friends. When the group came home, they couldn't wait to tell their churches and their friends about the needs and how they could help. So the work grew even more, and we built a small factory that pressed sunflower seeds for oil and threshed grains. Next came a sturdy dormitory for the children and a nurse's quarters to house the nurses needed to work at the health center. Almost every year there was a mission trip. More people saw the needs and spread the word. Coming home from one of the trips, I sat next to a small, smiley Ugandan man on the plane. He wore a clerical collar and told me he was an Anglican clergyman going to a church conference in London. Reverend Otto wanted to know what I had been doing in Uganda. 
When I told him, he lit up and said that he and his wife were raising eleven children who were left orphans on the roads of Gulu because of the Civil War. Most were in their early teens by this time. He said he would like to take in more children, but they were barely scraping by now. Perhaps Shared Blessings would consider helping them with a sponsorship program? I did not hesitate to tell him, regretfully, that this would not be possible. We were stretched with our present commitment, and I did not see how we could take on more. And frankly, I was feeling very exhausted from the trip, emotionally and physically. I had broken my ankle a few months before the trip, and it had not healed before we left, so I had thumped around with a walker for the whole time. The heartbreaking needs we had encountered in Uganda weighed heavily on my thoughts, and I knew much praying was needed because I was drained of ideas and energy. I felt bad telling Reverend Otto that all I could promise him was that I would pray for the Kizia Children's Home. The man was so humble and sincere, with an aura of joy in spite of the tragedies that surrounded his life. I kept my promise, and along with Tom, prayed daily for Otto, his wife Filder, and the children who depended on them. Six months passed, and one day the mail brought a letter from Otto and some pictures showing the children in their daily activities. The pictures released a wave of emotion within me. I knew then that even if I could not start a sponsorship program there personally, I must do something for the Kazia Children's Home. Tom, always generous, agreed immediately that we could send them some money, which we did. And then the floodgates opened, with people from many different areas of our lives suddenly and incidentally asking us if we had heard about the plight of children in Gulu, Uganda, the invisible children, or night walkers, who walked miles every night just to sleep in piles at the government hospital to avoid being kidnapped and forced to join Joseph Kony's Liberation Army as child soldiers. Every morning the children walked back to their villages to attend school, sometimes to find their huts burned down and their parents killed. Our various friends, who were so interested in helping the Nightwalkers, became a whole new base of sponsors for Kazia, and that was how God prompted Shared Blessings to start a second sponsorship program. That we would even think about starting a third sponsorship program, this time in India, came as a huge surprise to me. We were approached by an Indian man who was high on the ladder of government officials and attending an adoption conference with us in California. Shaila Rao, my friend and co-worker who was from India, had befriended him at the conference, and he stopped to visit us at Family Connections Adoptions on his way back to India. When he happened to hear about shared blessings, he immediately asked if we would start a sponsorship program for tribal children in the remote mountains of India. His old college friend Vihara had been living a sacrificial life in the poverty-stricken mountain area of Odisha, serving the tribal people, and he badly needed support for the children. Of course, I politely declined, not only because I had no time to take on additional work, but Shared Blessings was a Uganda program. Later, Shyla quietly asked me if I could reconsider. If she took over the management of the program, recruited sponsors, tracked the money, wrote the thank you notes, updated the sponsors on their children, and kept in touch with Bahara, would I say yes to it? I told her I needed to pray about it, and I am ashamed to admit that it was with reluctance that I laid it out before God. I really didn't want to consider working outside of Uganda. It was a struggle, but God managed to get through to me, and I gave up my idea that shared blessings was to be exclusively for Uganda. That was my limitation, not his. I needed to let it go and give this program a chance. Once that was clear, I felt light-hearted and eager to see how God would work through us in Odisha. Shyla proceeded to do an amazing job of cultivating interest in the program, not only recruiting sponsors, 
but she also spearheaded an effort to build a beautiful boarding school that ended up turning out the first high school graduates in the whole tribal region. There is now a sense of purpose among the families in the villages, and new hope in the air. Shared blessings cannot say yes to every group that asks to be supported, but I have learned that we cannot automatically say no. Even when it seems foolish to stretch ourselves any further, God lets us know by sending new and unexpected people to carry the new work. He gives us a strong nudge when he wants us to take on a new project. There have been dozens of requests and more coming ever since we got a website. If our board does feel moved to seriously consider a project, we test many factors first. Since adding India, we have also added two more partners. Children Safe Uganda, a child welfare organization in Kampala, Uganda, and Emmanuel Children's Home, a family-run orphanage in Myanmar. Both have proved to be work that God is blessing. At each of these new places, leadership is in the hands of dynamic young Christians who inspire us with their sacrificial lives and their trust in Jesus. We who are helping them are continually being blessed by knowing them. They accomplish wonders with the money we send, and so many donors get the joy of seeing children's lives change. Because the responsibilities have grown tremendously since the Family Connections Adoptions Board first agreed to administer the ministry, Shared Blessings obtained a separate nonprofit status and a board of its own in 2007. Family Connections Adoptions continues to house the work and provide help with administrative costs. As Family Connections Adoptions added branch offices and new employees in different parts of California, the administrative duties of my job kept increasing. State regulations were multiplying, and I felt like I was always running to keep up with them. It was only with help from many gifted people on the staff that I was able to juggle all the balls in the air. One person who was an invaluable resource was our pro bono consultant and adoption attorney, Allison, who is also our daughter. You can imagine my surprise and great joy when one day she said to me, I feel like God is telling me that when you are ready to retire, I should run the agency. I was approaching my 67th birthday and was longing to lay down the responsibilities of executive director. I never dreamed that Allison would give up her successful law practice and lucrative wages to take on Family Connections adoptions, but it was the perfect solution. So she gathered up the loose ends of my administrative efforts and for the past 16 years has led the agency with great skill. She branched out to provide new types of adoptions, hired talented people who fostered growth, opened up a branch office in San Luis Obispo and inserted the word Christian into the agency's official name so that it is now Family Connections Christian Adoptions, or FCCA. She continues to inspire the staff with her firm belief in dependence on prayer for every decision. When Allison took over, I didn't retire. I have continued to go into the FCCA office, but without the burden of administrative duties. I am now able to spend most of my office time on things I love to do, like social work with families, planning events, and editing newsletters. With shared blessings, I am working on delegating responsibilities for each of our five projects so that when it is time to lay down the leadership, the transition can be a smooth one. As for our family, it continues to grow without my help. Lots of children can lead to lots of grandchildren, and then to great-grandchildren, as is the case with us. The children are various sizes, shapes, and colors, a rich garden of mixed flowers who bring deep joy to Tom and me in these golden years. But don't think that our life has been without pain and sorrows. I have not written about those or about my many mistakes and failures along the way. That would take a whole book, not just a chapter. I have just tried to highlight what the potter has done with an imperfect pot. 
One of my favorite quotes is from Mother Teresa of Calcutta, which encourages us to let God use you without consulting you. Let the Lord catch you. Let yourself be caught by him and then let him dispose of you utterly. I am trying to do just that, and I want to be available for his agenda. Audrey Foster, Founder, Family Connections, Christian Adoptions, fcadoptions.org. Shared Blessings, sharedblessingsicm.org. Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Mark 10:14. This chapter has been narrated by Kate Robinson.